Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. One of the amazing benefits you get when you are on the Israel Bible Center email list is an invitation to monthly live seminars we have among the faculty. You get to hear all of us interacting over interesting and sometimes challenging aspects to biblical interpretation. A few months ago, we had a discussion about Genesis 1 through 11. Those are the prehistory chapters that have huge stories in them like creation, Babel, Noah's flood. On this podcast, we've already talked several times about the creation text and how they interact with other issues like Kabbalah or ancient Near Eastern texts and with the book of Exodus. But what about those other dramatic stories? Well, if you missed the live seminar we hosted, you can hear clips of the event on the IBC course called Study Genesis Stories for All They're Worth. You'll learn interesting perspectives on many of the dynamic stories in Genesis, from the evil in humanity to Babel to Abraham and all the way through to the Joseph narratives. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about the flood with three other faculty from IBC. And we're going to talk not only about the Genesis perspective, but also what later Jewish interpreters thought of the flood narrative. Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, Dr. Nicholas Shazer, and Dr. Tupa Guerra all join us for this conversation. But since we will talk about the Israelite text and later Jewish interpreters, let's start with Dr. Guerra first as she talks about how to talk with the text and how even the format of the text will influence how we interact with these historical narratives. The text invites us to question things. The text invites us to have a, a discussion and to talk with the text. I know it sounds a bit weird when I say talk with the text, but it's precisely what it is. The text is inviting us to collaborate and to participate. And of course, we always had sages and we always had people uh, who were interested in the text and wanted to understand it better. He wanted to make it more clear to everyone. And how people would do that. They would do it sometimes by discussing and sometimes by writing other texts, texts that would explain better some points of the original text and to bring more knowledge to it. So we found we find a lot of those texts among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And just one quick thing, because when we think about uh, the texts today, we think usually we think, okay, now we have internet and stuff. But usually we think about a book which is this format that we grow used to, to, to search and you can flip the pages and stuff. But here, what we're talking about, we're talking about scrolls. And scrolls are very different from books 
because scrolls are uh, rolled pieces of papyra or of uh, other materials. And if you want to access one part, one specific part, it's harder than if you have a book, because if with a book, you can just flip the pages with the scroll. You have to roll both parts and find the part you need. And also scrolls have a limited amount of text you can put on this, on them. So the texts in antiquity, they weren't understood in the same way as we understand them today. In the sense that you would not search for a passage in a book. Usually most people wouldn't know how to read anyway. So all of this is important because the way we relate to the text and the way we use the physical thing, the text, it's also part of the way we explain the text and how we interact with it. You know, I've seen this with modern technology as we have so many texts available to us on our phones, tablets, and computers. Take the Bible, for instance. A quick search will take us to the exact text we need. And I've noticed as people use this kind of technology more and more, they lose a sense of where the small story they just searched for fits within the larger compilation of text. It's one thing to search for a verse or a phrase or a chapter of a book with a quick search on a tablet, then flipping through physical pages of a book. As a result, fewer people know, does Malachi come before or after Micah? Or if you're reading the Christian Bible, where is that little letter of Jude placed in Christian scriptures? Ultimately, as Tupa just said, how we read the text will influence how we interact with the text, which is also going to influence our biblical literacy. But to get back to the subject at hand, today we are looking at the flood narrative. So let's go to Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who will explain the ancient Near Eastern background to the Noah flood story. So the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is a Babylonian king of legend and lore, shows up, actually the name Gilgamesh shows up in what's called the Sumerian king list, which is, comes from ancient Sumer, the, really the first kind of major civilization, nation, state of ancient Mesopotamia. So predating the Israelites by hundreds and hundreds of years. But Gilgamesh is, is well known in ancient Mesopotamian literature. And there are several different versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh written in several different languages. But it's very clear that the story itself and the first instances of the story all predate the Bible, uh, even the oldest biblical texts that we that we have. So the reason why that's important is because what the Epic of Gilgamesh is going to do, along with all sorts of other texts of the period, is going to talk about this ancient Mesopotamian flood that, according to their theology, so the Babylonian theology, notice the first sentence, the great gods send a deluge. So multiple gods are sending this flood against humanity. And then the, these different gods are described and discussed in this text. There is uh, there's even like a Noah character uh, who's called different things at different times. Utnapishtim is probably the most common or well-known name for the Noah figure of these ancient Mesopotamian texts. But this figure is told to build a vessel, as you'll see, fashion a vessel um, and, and to create a kind of a boat or some sort of, yeah, some sort of vessel, um, although it looks different in the Bible than it does in these texts, in order to save lives in the midst of the flood. So 
th- this idea of a flood predates that of the Bible. So from my perspective, and I get this question a lot from people, is, you know, to what extent can the biblical narrative of the flood be trusted as an historical narrative? And what I always respond with is the idea of a flood in the Mesopotamian world, in the ancient Mesopotamian world, is so ubiquitous throughout the cultures and literatures of these people. And, and the Hebrew version, the one with Noah, is, is a good example of this as well, that it's got to be referring to some sort of an historical event. Now, what happens with each people group is they give their own narrative, literary, theological, ethical spin on this basic historical event. And that's actually where the Genesis narrative begins to get really, really interesting because it's clear that the biblical writers know these earlier stories and are responding to those stories and they're just presenting a new way of understanding God, understanding the ethics of God, and understanding human relationships with God. So a comparison between the Bible and these other texts, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, can be really fun and fruitful and interesting for the Bible student. It's very important to people to remember that all those cultures were, some people were living close by. They were having exchanges and like commerce, they talk to each other. So when you have a text that kind of answers other texts, or if you have some similar things, it, it doesn't mean they didn't exist or doesn't mean that one copy from another. What means is that the, those stories are present in the life of people in that region. And that's very important. It's very good. It's, as Nick said, it's probably more likely that something historical happens precisely because we have different groups of people talking about the same event. The idea that the writers of Genesis, the Israelite writers of Genesis, are taking or stealing or reproducing the material from, say, ancient Babylonian literature or ancient Canaanite literature, any of their neighbors, Assyrians, Sumerians, to say that they're like taking it and making it their own is just a misunderstanding of what they're up to. As Tupa said, all these groups are neighbors and there's close relationality between these groups. So the same stories get funneled orally throughout these different cultures. And then each culture proposes a rationale, a reason for its occurrence. So put yourself back in the place of an ancient person who has to deal with this flood and say, let's say they survive or their ancestors survive this and they come out of it. Well, they're, they're, resp- they're going to respond to it in certain ways. They've got a worldview. And that worldview has to do with many gods sending a flood. For example, in, in certain Mesopotamian versions of this flood story, human beings are so loud on earth that the gods are having trouble sleeping up in heaven. I love this. Right? It's one of my favorite stories, yeah. like how humans are terribly loud and gods need to sleep. And That's, that's <laughs> right, exactly. Humans are too loud. So we'll just throw this flood and just destroy everybody. So that is a really capricious set of deities, according to the the Mesopotamian version. So what do we get with Genesis, with the Israelite version that postdates that version? What the Israelites are saying is, that's not how our God works. Our God is not a capricious deity who destroys the world for a little bit of noise. Our God doesn't make like rash decisions. Why in the, in the biblical version does the flood happen? It's not because God is annoyed. It's because human beings have filled the earth with, with violence, with Hamas, 
and with destruction. Oftentimes in English, that's translated corruption, that the whole world was corrupt or something. But it's really important to note that the word in Hebrew is shachat, and shachat means to destroy, to make something destroyed. And so when God looks on the world with all this violence going through it, God says, humanity has already destroyed its way upon the earth. So then God sends the flood and it shachat, it destroys the, the globe or the, the land or the earth. But the point that the, the Genesis is trying to make is human beings and their violence towards one another had already made the earth as good as destroyed. And God is like saddened, the God of Israel is saddened by this. Um, regretful, remorseful. I actually have a, an article on our, our weekly site called, Was God Angry Before the Flood? And you'll see in that article, just the extreme difference between the relational, ethical, moral God of Israel versus the capricious gods of Mesopotamia. So the reason I give you that comparison is to say, yeah, the ancient Israelites knew the stories of these capricious gods. And so that is they took some of the themes and the basic narrative that was really common to everyone. It's not like the Babylonians had copyrighted the story or something. And they, they took the material and they refashioned it and they represented it to make a theological and ethical point about themselves and about the greatness of their God. That's actually why we want the Bible to post-date these earlier stories, because when we do, we see that the creation story, the flood story, all sorts of other texts that we get in the Bible are responses to, and what I would call polemics against, the deficiencies that the Israelites see in these other groups and gods and, and cultures. So without the comparison, without the Bible coming after these other texts and commenting on them, a lot of the punch, a lot of the bite of the Bible just kind of goes out the window and it becomes a, a less dynamic and frankly, a little bit more boring text. But once we have the comparison, it really highlights the greatness of the God of Israel and actually would give a Bible reader today good reason for following that particular God. So if anything, it should bolster one's, you know, the logic of following the God of Israel, not dispense with it. Okay, that is the ancient Near Eastern context for the Israelite text. What about later Second Temple texts, like the Dead Sea Scrolls? How did people in Second Temple period interact with the Genesis text? There's an issue of purity that Dr. Guerra talks about. This comes out in how people in the Second Temple period talked about Genesis chapter 6 through 10, which include a very strange story about the sons of God coming to earth to marry the daughters of man. For more on those opening verses of chapter 6 and the interpretation of the Nephilim or the giants— You'll have to take the course. But what comes out in these later interpretations of Israelite text is a concern over mixing that which was pure with that which is impure. What do the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us about the cause of the Genesis flood? Here in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's very clear that the, the mixture they're more worried with is the mixture of heavenly beings and humans, which is not natural and it wasn't supposed to happen. And that's very, that what brings um, impurity to the land that brings, of course, other knowledges and other stuff. But basically, if we can, we can resume it to the idea that this Nephilim who are these children, this mixture, sometimes they're called the bastards. So 
what we can see is that they bring something terrible to earth. They bring impurity because they are not supposed to exist. This mixture is not supposed to exist. And this is very, very interesting that the people from the Second Temple period were worried and interested about this because purity is a huge aspect of the flood. And as the text said, and he destroyed them in the flood. Everything there on dry land was whipped out so that men, animals, and every bird, every winged being died. And the giants did not escape. And remember, we, we talked about the giants or Nephilims. And God placed the rainbow in the clouds to remember the covenant. From eternity to eternity, he will have compassion. The strength of Yahweh remember the marvels because of the fear for him. And let your soul rejoice. Do not oppose the words of Yahweh. And I think here it's an interesting perspective from the Dead Sea Scrolls on how uh, the flood is part, uh, it's, it's part in, the, in the scheme of times. The flood happened in a particular time. And now after the flood from eternity, there will be compa compassion on earth. And I think that's very important. And the whole idea that God placed the rainbow to remember the covenant and to remember people about the good things, because I, I yeah, I don't think God was angry. I think he was, as we said, uh, and that's a perspective that that's his crows bring this idea of purity and this idea that they needed to cleanse the earth. Of course, it's very, a very radical way of cleaning the earth, but at the same time, we're, we're all the elements are there, the water, which is very important for purity and for cleaning. And that's why that's one possible explanation for the flood. It was one that in the Dead Sea Scrolls was very, very important. And certainly in the ancient context, this idea of purity would have been understandable, probably much more understandable to ancient Near Eastern peoples than to us moderns today. I don't want to minimize this deep and anguished question of, you know, how could a loving God want to destroy so many people for the sake of something called purity? Let's not minimize that question. But what we're trying to do here is kind of understand what the text is actually presenting to its audience. And so I think that would have been definitely part of what ancient readers or hearers of the scroll, as you mentioned, would have understood. The reason that a lot of Second Temple texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls Talk about the flood in terms of uh, essentially a catastrophe, a catastrophic event that makes makes pure the land, is because if you remember in the Bible, it says that violence is is um, you know has filled the earth before the flood. That word for violence is Hamas, and it it oftentimes in the Bible refers to things like murder, killing. Just to go back to the Cain and Abel narrative that serves as the bridge into the flood narrative, so we can. We can see that what's happening is a lot of a lot of blood is being spilled, and it's interesting that the first thing that God says to Noah after the flood is, "Make sure you don't spill the blood of human beings." Okay, so that's a central problem in these chapters of Genesis. Elsewhere in the Bible, in the Torah, it says that blood pollutes the land. You can read about this in Numbers chapter thirty-five, for instance. Um, for example, the, if someone murders another person. Nothing can atone for that land except the blood of the one who killed the person. That's, that's Numbers 35, 33. And so 
the killing of people, violence against people, and the spilling of blood has catastrophic consequences for the land. And the only way to cleanse a polluted land is to do something drastic, like cleansing with the waters of the flood. So that's that is the like what's in the back of the minds of the Second Temple writers when they talk about purity and impurity and the need for this cleansing. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to accomplish the correction of the problem of spilled blood. It just, again, goes to show, it goes to highlight how absolutely abhorrent the idea of, of a human murdering another human would be according to the biblical authors. Later on in the Torah, blood is going to be the mechanism by which sins are atoned. Uh, there's a sacrality to blood. It, it, the blood is honestly the life force of the living, breathing being. So just to, just to kind of put it in those terms, like, and in biblical thought, if blood is spilled in this way, in this violent way, you need to do something to fix the problem of impurity in the land. So that's that's at least the background theology. It may not make, Shai, as you said, you know, you don't want to table, you know, the, the big issue of, you know, the destruction of human beings in the flood. That's a huge issue. What we're trying to do is just offer you some biblical theology that would, you know, give you an idea of where the biblical authors are coming from when they when they're presenting this narrative. Lastly, just really quickly, this is about the historicity of, of the flood narrative or the question of why did, when God sent the flood, did it fix the problem? Well, it can't fix the problem of sin. If, if there are human beings alive, sin is an ongoing problem. That's the first thing. And people have actual autonomy. God can't keep people from sinning. That's not a power that God has. Because of the way that God set up humanity, people can transgress God's commands. It's just something that they can do. And God can be upset about it, but God can't stop the human transgression from occurring. A better way to look at this is not did God's plan get messed up and, you know, didn't fix the problem of sin, but rather think of it from the opposite side of the historical spectrum. That is, I said that this, this flood thing happened prior to Israel's scriptures being written. So rather than saying God, the whole point of the story is that God sent the flood and then now you know, it didn't fix the problem. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is to say, okay, the ancient Israelite Bible authors are looking back on this event. They have knowledge of this flood and they're trying to make sense of this catastrophic event. And the way that some cultures do it is to say, our gods don't like us because we're too loud. But the ancient Israelites are, the amazing thing about the Israelites is they're just saying, that's not how God works. I'm sorry. Let me offer you a better alternative for understanding God. Our God is sad at this. The problem lies with us. Let's fix ourselves rather than, you know, you know, painting God in, in, in an unfair light. Like all, all sorts of conclusions that the ancient Israelites are making with this story are wildly powerful and amazing. And I think that's the, the end of the historical spectrum we should be looking at. Yes, this thing happened. Now, how on earth do we make sense of it? And I think of all the options we have in the ancient world, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible makes the best sense of it. There is also this really delightful bit in class when Nick talks about the connection between Noah and Jonah. Yes, Jonah, it's great. Um, I'll have to save that for another time. Or you can simply just go register for the course and hear it now. 
Wow, we covered a lot of ground today, from another ancient Near Eastern flood story to the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you like these kinds of conversations, join us at IBC, where you will fit in very nicely with the student body. You will have access to many amazing courses that dig into the details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing a really amazing job editing and mixing and adding in all the good music. And thank you for joining me and being curious about all things Bible related. 